Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's a difference between putting the world to right because you have a feeling of rightness inside you than putting the world to right because you think there's something wrong at the center of the world. Yeah. And uh, yeah. those are two very different identities shaped by a different point of origin. Hi, I'm Sarah Wilson and this is Wild, a podcast about living a more beautiful and fired-up life. Here we will continue my 10-year nomadic journey living out of one bag in search of more connection, more awakeness, less consuming, less loneliness and less bloody scrolling. I'll be inviting you to join me in finding better ways to radically love and save our one wild and precious life on this planet. So David White... He's a poet, a philosopher, who trained as a marine biologist and was a naturalist guide in the Galapagos, the Amazon and the Himalayas before switching to being a professional poet, there's such a thing, because as I heard him explain once, the language of science wasn't large enough to convey existence. He's written more than a dozen poetry and prose books and his latest is called Still Possible, which I think will come out in Australia or be available in Australia in a few months. He recently teamed with Sam Harris on his Meditation Toolkit series and he coaches corporate America in leadership via poetry and conducts poetry walking tours of Ireland, Japan, Italy and Wordsworth's Lake District. And if you've read my books, you're probably aware he's the guy who got me into poetry. Steven Spielberg, funnily enough, says the same and he's joined David on one of his walks as well. I'd previously skipped over the poem breakouts in books. They quite honestly annoyed me and got in the way of the plot. I'm a horribly impatient person and that's the kind of thing I used to do. But David's work has had a massive impact on me and it taught me stillness and patience for one and it got me to love and honour my aloneness for another, which has been a lifelong struggle. Not long after I started listening to and reading David's work, I was sitting at a cafe in a regional town where my nomadic journey had landed me for a bit and a mutual friend walked over and I kid you not, he said, hey, Sarah, you might like to meet this guy I'm having coffee with, David White, which, of course, I chose at the time to take as an awesome sign of of something. David and I then met up a few times for a beer, a dinner, and finally I joined him and his wife, Gail, and his daughter, Charlotte, 
on one of his walking trips in the Lake District while writing this one wild and precious life. Many of you have requested that David come on this chat in the various invitations I put out there to tell me who you'd like on this podcast. And there are so many wild ideas he has gifted me over the years. So today is a very special conversation, as David would put it. The wild idea we'll pivot from, and as you know, I like to try and pivot from one such wild idea every episode and expand out from there, is something many of you have probably heard me say, and I borrow it completely from David. One of the most important disciplines of a human life is to ask beautiful questions, to look for them, to ask them in unbeautiful moments, to ask them courageously and vulnerably. Because beautiful questions will get you places and it'll get you to the right places. And as David says, there is always a more beautiful question to ask. David is Irish but grew up in Yorkshire and now lives on an island off Seattle. So his lilt is also large and global and broguish, but also so grounding and you'll hear that in this episode. I get him to recite a few of his poems and he does it really beautifully and it's a moment, especially if you're not into poetry, to sit in the silence if you can and he repeats the lines a couple of times so you have heaps of opportunity to kind of get it. And my bold aim really is to get you into poetry via this episode if you're not already and armed for asking the more beautiful, courageous questions of this wild existence. Anyway, let's get to it. David White, welcome to Wild. It's very good to be with you, Sarah. Um, I don't know if you recall, the last time we met was a couple of years ago in the Lake District, and there was a moment um, that was etched into my memory on top of, I think it was Coniston, it was the last hike that we did together, and I, you were reciting Robert Frost, Fire and Ice, and I think the line was something about if I had to perish twice, ice is great. And I was going blue and my autoimmune disease had kicked in and your lovely daughter Charlotte had to sort of escort me down the mountain to the pub where we waited for the rest of the gang to join us. Um, that was the last time I saw you and um, it was very, very memorable. But we'd had a, a week of hiking together following the footsteps of the Wordsworths, of course. Yes. I'm wondering if you could explain... I guess your fondness for these wild natural scapes, as harsh as they can be, and why they meld so well with poetry. Well, I think uh, I think wildness always tells you that there's there are forces and context and powers that are larger than your own, and uh, that they will come and find you and name you in ways in which in, in which your your endeavors in the little pocket of reality that you live in uh, are powerless to uh, describe. And so, I mean, Wurzes himself has this incredible line where he says, I, I, he's looking out o- over the wild landscape of the English Lake District and over the Irish Sea. And with the sun coming up, he says, I made no vows, but vows were then made for me. I made no vows, but vows were then made for me, bond unknown to me was given, that I should be else sinning greatly a dedicated spirit. And on I walked in blessedness, which even yet remains. Yeah. It's true, isn't it? Yeah. I'm sure he so, wrote that 
two weeks after yeah. going for an epic hike because I've always found the benefit <clears throat> of walking in the wilds can last for a week, two weeks at a time before, you know, I've got to get back out there again and get a fix. <laughs> yeah, the wind and the rain gets into you, um, at least if you're hiking, hiking in Ireland or Wales or England. And, uh, you know, they talk about the wildness in the west of Ireland. Uh, it's not the wildness you get in a true wilderness, like, say, the central Australian desert or, or the forests of, the, of, the, of uh, North America. It, it's the wildness in the way the elements move. You know, it's actually a very, it's been, a, it's a landscape that's been settled for 5,000 years since the last ice age. Yeah. But yeah. the wildness is in the meeting, this ancient conversation between mountains and sea, between the solidity of the land and the power of the wind and the rain, you know. And as a species of wet and cold in Ireland, uh, and the north of England, that will that's colder than the Antarctic. You know, it just get right into your bones, and uh, it, that's the kind of wildness where suddenly the inner and the outer are in this conversation, and it's why you feel so alive in the pub afterwards. You know, when you're drinking your hot whiskey or your vegetarian equivalent of it, <laughs> and, <laughs> and your body glows. You know, and your conversation glows and always tried to run uh, my my extended poetry courses as as walking holidays because that combination of imaginative and intellectual stimulus combined with the outer elements you know is is a heady combination and then you get yeah. good food and drink and convivial conversation that's wild and you can get the wildness in the pub in the evening or or uh, uh, back at wherever you're staying, you know, and it comes from that wildness that you've touched out in the, the great, yeah. the great beyond. Yes. I've heard <laughs> you describe the fact that I think humans are drawn to the natural world or find ourselves really opening up into it um, because <clears throat> nature is, it's just itself and that humans are very unique on the planet because we actually refuse to be ourselves. And well, let Yes, mm. let, let's say that human beings are the one corner of creation that can actually refuse to be themselves. And we're the only corner that we know. A mountain is just a mountain. Uh, a crow is just a crow. And uh, uh, a grackle is just a grackle. But uh, uh, human beings can actually pretend to be something else. And they can pretend for so long that they forget they're pretending. So the mask you put on in order to defend yourself or not to be found under difficult circumstances perforce becomes your uh, your constrained identity. Yeah. So it's always been seen as, as an incredible achievement for human beings to, to just be themselves, mm. which is why you should never say to someone who's just about to go on stage, just be yourself. It's the worst <laughs> advice in the world because it's the most difficult thing to do. The person immediately says, which self are you talking about? The self that's terrified <laughs> of all of these thousands of people waiting to be. To yeah. yeah. For me, so, for me, nature though yeah. brings me to the closest, truest, most expansive version of myself. And I think it's because I identify an aspect of myself mm. in those still mountains, in yes. the movement and the flow and the inevitability 
of life as it presents itself in nature. Yes, and every, I mean, every different part of the of the natural world brings out something different in, in us. You know, being out in the wilds in Australia brings out a very different conversation than being in the wilds uh, in the West of Ireland or the Pacific Northwest where I, of the United States where I am now. Um, I remember the first time I woke up uh, in Australia out in, out in the natural world. And, you know, in England, when you, when you use the word birdsong, it has a particular kind of lyrical invitational feeling to it. Well, Still waking up, yes, it was, <laughs> it was like hearing Australian birds in the morning. It was like hearing all the lads being kicked out of the pub at four o'clock in the morning and none of them wanted to go. Never... <laughs> That's <laughs> I, a very good description. I know, I'd never heard a racket like it. Uh, so um, <laughs> it made me smile. And uh, as well as being a great alarm clock for getting out of the old sleeping bag, but uh, they're impatient yeah, for us to yeah. join them. Mm. I think that's the way I see it. Um, yes, yeah, yeah. That, they mm. want connection. So I think that's a good way for us to get into the creative process of writing. I mean, for you, does being in nature help you with writing your poetry? I know the Wordsworths. I know countless poets have and thinkers and philosophers had have had to walk to think and to create and. The yes. Wordsworths, of course, yes. William and his sister Dorothy, I think I read they clocked up 290,000 kilometres walking in their lifetimes, and that's about 10 kilometres a day each from the age of five. I mean, that's phenomenal. Yes. Is that the same for you? Do, you? do you walk to get into that poetic space so that you can create? Well, it's interesting. I When I first began writing seriously in my teens, I wrote from when I was probably seven or eight years old, but when I became a serious young man and really took poetry seriously, I all of my poetry was composed walking at night. And I would memorize it as I went along. And then when I got home, I'd write it down. And uh, that's no longer true, but it was it was one of my ways in this. I mean, we we're all learning now the benefits of walking and the way it stimulates every system in our body just about. It's one of the greatest things you can do uh, for your health is to walk. Mm -hmm. And the longer you walk and the brisker you walk, uh, the better you are. Uh, so, but it does, it does open up the, the mind and it, it puts you into a kind of dynamic rest. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the ability to walk and pay attention without thinking also uh, but to have thoughts arise and language arise out of the meeting between what you think is you and what you think is not you. I've always, I've always found walking a, a very contemplative act. Yeah. And I, uh, I like to say that it goes yeah. at the same pace <clears throat> as discerning thought. You know, we emerged as humans with the brains that we have when we became upright and put one foot in front of the other. And so thinking as we know our thinking as humans to be today, emerged as we got upright and walked. And the pace of walking is conducive yes. to that discernment, that getting to know ourselves. And I would course, say so, yes. Yeah. And, and I think poetry, writing poetry, reading poetry, engaging with it, does something similar. It gets us into a pace that is conducive to discernment and to expansiveness yes. and knowingness. And I don't want to put words into your mouth. 
um, at this stage. But I'm wondering if you can explain, because I, I, I explained in my intro to this discussion that you introduced me to poetry. You got me loving poetry. I used to skip over poet, poetry bits in books. You know how they have yes. a little quote? And I used to skip over them and I got in the way of the prose, yes. the storyline. I wanted to get straight to plot. But you got me into that stillness. And I'm just wondering if you could, in your own words, explain what poetry does to the human experience. Well, we've all had the experience of having to say exactly the right thing at exactly the right time to to exactly the right person. And most of us have experienced this either when you're telling someone that you love them for the first time. So it's very important how you say it, your tonal voice, the body language of your language and how it's received. You know, you have to take it. All of your senses are a tiptoe, as Shakespeare would say. You're really paying attention to who's listening to you. So you're shaping your voice to those ears because it has to be heard. And the other other instance is where you're bringing uh, terrible news to someone or you're conveying that someone has passed away who uh, both of you love, but particularly the person, someone who's died. You have to say it exactly right. And you have to get through their defenses, but in a way in which you you show care for the person who's listening. And you will always, in those circumstances, repeat what you say. Yeah. Uh, you will say what you need to say in three different ways with three different tonal bodies to them. And this is very, very ancient, you know, that you, when something powerful is said, you never understand it fully the first time. I remember as a, in my teens, I lost a close friend who died at the end of the same race that I ran in, a cross-country race. Mm. And he literally died at the finish line. He collapsed. And, and then there were people all around him and trying to resuscitate him. And, and then he was taken into the changing rooms. And, uh, and I remember one of the teachers coming out and I asked, you know, uh, I, said, I said, how is he, you know? And he said something to me. And I walked away and then I literally collapsed 100 yards away, 100 meters away in the, in, in the sports field, you know, because it had taken that long for me to understand that, uh, that he died. Yeah. Um, even though I heard it, I didn't hear it, but then I had to say it again to myself and then it struck me. Yeah. In the Greek, Greek theatre, when the gods said anything, it was always repeated by the chorus because a human being could not take in what the gods had said the first time. So it had to be sung or said or chanted again. So this is another power of poetry. First of all, um, I always say it's language against which we have no defenses. It's said in a way in which you have to admit that there's no argument. It's not didactic, yeah. And then there's always this chant, uh, this entrainment, you know, this invitation uh, and the beauty of the language in which it's said and the way in which it's said. Yeah. So all of those things, um, when you think about it, if if you have a big occasion in your life and you have to speak, a person who who has never looked at poetry for years will always unconsciously look to poetry for a quote or to recite it because we may have been turned off poetry by our schooling, which often happens. 
but we still unconsciously know that poetry is the ultimate way for a human being to speak and to speak to another and to understand their world. Yeah, I think I've heard you say that poetry gets us out of our own way so that we can almost, and this is my words, <laughs> interlaid over yours, um, is so that we can almost get to the thing that prose can merely point to. So prose yeah. tries to, with lots of words, yeah. explain the thing, but poetry uses less words and points straight at it. And we have to almost go to the spaces between the words to get to the, the universal thing, the universal knowingness, yeah. the universal connection. And when we get it, it's the getting that, you know, it's like when you get a plot in a book and you go, oh, my goodness, I feel like I'm part of something bigger. It's the same with poetry. When you when you get it and you have so few words that were used to get you there, there's almost this sense of expanded knowledge and understanding that you, you understand. Is that yes. sort of right? Yeah. yeah, there's a, a very short piece I have at the beginning of my new book of poetry uh, called Still Possible, and it's called For the Road to Santiago, and uh, um, it gets somewhere very, very, it's a beginning poem, but uh, I was so surprised by it because, I mean, when you're writing poetry, you're overhearing yourself say things you didn't know you knew, you know, and I had this very powerful experience of that. That's the other dynamic about poetry, actually, is being surprised by what you're saying. So, so this is for the road to Santiago, Santiago being that very fashionable pilgrimage in uh, Northern Spain at the moment, that half, half the planet is, was walking until COVID. <laughs> so, so this is about setting off really on any journey you're on for the road to Santiago, for the road to Santiago, don't make new declarations about what to bring and what to leave behind for the road to Santiago. Don't make new declarations about what to bring and what to leave behind. Bring what you have, bring what you have. You're always going that way anyway. You're always going that way all along. For the road to Santiago, don't make new declarations about what to bring and what to leave behind. Bring what you have, bring what you have. You're always going that way anyway. You're always going there all along. So there's two radical little lines in there that are so surprising. One is don't make new declarations, which immediately I'd say, I'm always being told to make new declarations, you know, <laughs> new resolutions, new senses of myself. I'm supposed to be original. I'm supposed to be creative. You know, Strategizing. It's congruous yes. strategizing, which yes. goes over the yeah. top of who we really are. Yeah. So mm. bring what you have. Well, immediately I'm back in my body. I'm saying, what actually, what am I already carrying? What do I have? What do I have underneath all this, these outer necessities? Yeah. That's of essence. Yeah. There's a very ancient pilgrimage poem in the Irish monastic tradition. It says, to go to Rome, great the journey little the gain to go to Rome. Great the journey, little the gain. If you do not bring him with you, you will not find him there. Great the journey, little 
the gain. If you do not bring him with you, you will not find him there. So that works with the same very powerful ancient dynamic about resting into yourself. Yeah. We talked about the restedness in, in even the wildest landscape. The wind is just the wind, the mountain is the mountain, the river is just the river. And, um, and so the sense, you know, human being, of what that possibility might be like just to rest into yourself. Yeah, in just those two yeah. lines in the first paragraph of The Road to Santiago, I, I just immediately go to an, a sense that everything is okay. I am okay as I am. And if there's something that humans need to be told at every juncture of their life, is that you're okay yes. as you are. Yeah. All, yeah. Is, all is as it needs to be. Yes. And have and of course, all that you need. Yes. And of course, we can't be Pollyannish about it and think that we've no room for improvement. But there's a difference between putting the world to right because you have a feeling of rightness inside you than putting the world to right because you think there's something wrong at the center of the world. Yeah. And uh, yes. those are two very different identities shaped by a different point of origin. Yeah. I might move to the actual wild idea that I originally wanted to to call you up and talk about. And that is um, a phraseology that I took from you. And I, in fact, wrote to you and your people to make sure I could use it in my book, This One Wild and Precious Life. And it's this idea of beautiful questions. Yes. And I think you've said one of the most important disciplines is to ask more beautiful questions and that there's always scope to ask a more beautiful question. Can you explain yes. what the beauty or the the worth of a beautiful question is? Yes, this first occurred to me. I was uh, when I, uh, my good friend uh, and uh, companion, literary and philosophical companion, John O'Donoghue. The wonderful um, poet. Yep. Yeah, the Irish philosopher, poet. Yeah, He was a philosopher, poet. I was a poet, philosopher. And uh, it was a great loss when he went. And I, I, I received many phone calls from talks that he was committed to saying, would you come and speak for John? We've got 300 people all paid up and, and, he's, and you're the nearest thing. So, and one of the talks I inherited, <laughs> actually, I inherited a talk on Jesus to about <laughs> 5,000 Catholics in Los Angeles, which I was shaking my fist at John for, but uh, I managed to carry off somehow. And um, without getting struck by lightning. And, uh, <laughs> but um, another one was, uh, was the practice of making a more beautiful mind. And uh, the practice of, of creating a more beautiful mind, it was in Toronto. And I was flying out there uh, to give this talk on John's behalf after he passed away. And I was saying, I was saying, how do you actually practice having a more beautiful mind. And I came to the conclusion after a good hour's thought, looking out the window at the clouds and everything, that the best way you have of shaping a more beautiful mind, and I started to use the word shaping instead of creating, uh, was by asking really beautiful questions. Questions that took you out of yourself, uh, questions for which you had no immediate answer. Mm. And um, 
And I even had a piece already written about it. It's called Sometimes. Sometimes, if you move carefully through the forest, breathing like the ones in the old stories who could cross a shimmering bed of leaves without a sound, sometimes, if you move carefully through the forest, breathing like the ones in the old stories who could cross a shimmering bed of leaves without a sound, you come to the place whose only task is to trouble you with tiny but frightening requests, conceived out of nowhere, but in this place, beginning to lead everywhere. Requests to stop what you are doing right now and to stop what you are becoming while you do it. Questions that can make or unmake a life. Questions that have patiently waited for you. Questions that have no right to go away. You come to a place whose only task is to trouble you with tiny but frightening requests, conceived out of nowhere, but in this place beginning to lead everywhere. Requests to stop what you are doing right now and to stop what you are becoming while you do it. Questions that can make or unmake a life. Questions that have patiently waited for you. Questions that have no right to go away. So even that last question in the poem is a very beautiful thing to ask ourselves. What's the question that has no right to go away in your life right now? You can ask it of your relationship too, you know, for two people together. What's the question that has no right to go away right now? And instinctively, both people already know what it is as soon as you've, they just don't want to face it or say it. <laughs> but, but you can turn your face away from it but that question will still be there when you turn your face back. And when, while your face is turned away, um, your life goes into neutral and nothing makes sense anymore. As soon as you turn your face back to the question that has no right to go away, uh, things become real again. Even if you don't have the answer to the question, the fact that you're engaged with what is troubling you and what is inviting you, what is good for you, and what's going to break your heart all at the same time. Mm. This, this is called human life. This is called your life. Yeah? So we're constantly living other people's lives out as a kind of defensive mechanism against the heartbreak of our own life. So we attempt we attempt an artificial perfection that we perceive in other people's existence. And of course, Instagram and Facebook and all, all this magnifies the, the perceived perfection of other people's lives. <laughs> but, yeah. but a real life uh, is always being questioned, I would say, through heartbreak. Uh, that whatever ideas you had about yourself, your world, your loved ones, and your society, your planet, you will always have your heart broken on any sincere path that you're going to take. And you need the language for that heartbreak, and you need to feel just as much yourself when you're having your heart broken as you do when you're on top of the world and dispensing advice to everyone else in the world. 
United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You talk about the word besieged in in your wonderful book, Consolations. And for those who are unfamiliar with poetry and maybe a bit new to it, you may enjoy David's book, Consolations, because it's sort of small little essays on is it solace, nourishment and the underlining meaning of everyday words. And one of them, of course, being besieged. And we are besieged between kind of competing, pulling things, aloneness and needing to belong work and life and this notion of work-life balance, which I know you're not a big fan of, finding balance. Um, Asking beautiful questions, I think you've said, is almost the door through which you can walk to be able to navigate those competing things that besiege us. Um, I think I said recently to someone, I might have even written on Instagram ironically, that, you know, it's almost like we can't contain our multitudes at the moment, we we don't know how to navigate the nuances. Do you feel that yes. poetry and and uh, and it's like we we can't we can't grasp our largeness in this world? You know, we're large. We contain multitudes, as as Walt Whitman said. Yes. Um, and yet we've almost, as you say, we've turned our face away from that to go numb. And how can we ask more beautiful questions that get us okay and comfortable with the nuance, the grey? the work and the life, the the multitudes, the bigness of it all, because it's only going to get bigger, isn't it, David? Like what, the world is only going to get more and more complex with more and more competing interests and distractions. Yes. Well, What are some questions we can ask that can help with that? Well, I'd say in order to ask those beautiful questions, you have to have a relationship with silence. And you can't ask the really fiercely beautiful questions without that because it's too frightening and too scary uh, to the strategic mind that's constantly wanting to have the answer too early in the process. So when you think about it, you know, you've been constantly rewarded for having the easy answer. You, in in class, you know, you got your you got the accolade from the teacher if you got your hand up and said, "Miss, Miss, Sir, Sir, I." I have the answer. And if if you were called on, you did have the answer, you were the chosen one and you felt very good about yourself. Yeah. And uh, you never got rewarded for saying, you know, miss, I have absolutely no idea about what you're talking about, you know, which was <laughs> probably a common yeah, experience yeah. for all of us. But I'm really fascinated about where this is leading. You never got rewarded for not knowing. So we have to start building that reward system inside ourselves around silence and around not having the easy answer. 
I have a line from a poem, uh, which it's a poem which is about a little a little visit to a holy well in the west of Ireland called Tober Fordrick, or the Well of Patrick. And the first lines are are turn sideways into the light, as they say the old ones did, and disappear into the originality of it all. Be impatient with easy explanations. Be impatient with easy explanations and teach that part of the mind that wants to know everything not to begin questions it cannot answer. Teach that part of the mind that wants to know everything not to begin questions it cannot answer. The strategic mind, you know, the thing that assigns labels and names, it's a it's been it's an evolutionary friend to us because it allows us to survive, yeah. Um, but it's it's not the part of your mind that can that can grant you any happiness. In fact, its job is to make you anxious that what you might be hearing is a threat, what or to have you worrying about whether you should bring that animal in and skin it and uh, before other animals get to it or before the elements get to it or or you need to repair the roof, that part, the part that makes lists, you know, the to-do list, yeah. This is an evolutionary necessity, but it's meant to be a good servant to another part of the psyche, which our great contemplative traditions have recognized, you know, yeah, which is yeah. the place of origin and originality and silence yeah, where the new you that's emerging can who always appears in your life as a stranger can be given some hospitality and and be invited in yeah. otherwise whenever you come across a new you your strategic mind actually labels it as the enemy as a stranger as other yeah and mm. should not be let in um, you always meet the new you as a stranger and you always turn away if you're caught in your strategic mind from the new you uh, because you cannot believe the changes you will have to go through to live out the new you you've just, you've just discovered. Yeah. David, can I ask, how do you sit in the silence and practice that and get comfortable with it as a precursor to asking these beautiful questions and accepting the new you? into your yeah. life. How do you practice it at that tangible level, on a daily level? Well, lots of different ways. One is walking, as you said earlier, um, and uh, opening the mind and and uh, not speaking to yourself. <laughs> um, uh, the other is uh, the writing of poetry itself, strangely enough is another form of deep, you know, the, the actual spoken word of poetry comes from silence. Otherwise, otherwise it's cliche and it's prose. Yeah. And then, um, and then I do have the concentrated discipline, um, which is, uh, I sit on a black cushion facing, facing a wall with, from my Zen training that I've done. Yeah. Um, so, um, so that's just a small portion of my day though. And I try and carry that concentrated practice you're hearing you're probably hearing the dogs outside my I windows can. here going crazy yep that's just <laughs> part of the 
part of the world around us. You know? And uh, yeah, so sitting, I sat Zen quite seriously for many years, but now I carry it with me and and uh, I feel as if I can just carry it with me walking around. But I do every now and again need to get back to it um, just to uh, just, you know, kind of, it's like, it's like the real thing, the true drop. Yeah. The single malt essence of, uh, of silence to sit facing the wall intensively. And it's, then, um, it's a pulse yes. that we have to do for the rest of our life. You can yes. learn to meditate and I'm much the same. I'll go through, yeah. I'll go th- through periods where I don't need to do it so much. I'm carrying it. And then I know yes. when I need to go back to it, I need yes. to pulse yeah. back. There's this yeah. ebb and flow, ebb and flow. Yeah. Yes. Um, I think it's important to, to say to people who have no meditation in their life, you know, and, and are put off by the word meditation, that it's much closer than you think. And you don't have to sit on a black cushion facing a wall, uh, at least not to begin with. Uh, you can just uh, practice paying attention to things other than yourself. Uh, like the trees or the sky, you know, getting out, getting out of your house and uh, the bird song and... Uh, reading poetry. Uh, reading poetry yes. takes you to that stillness, like I said before, you know, into that the spaces yes. between the words. And the spaces yes. between the words is that silence. Yes. Universal silence. Yes. Um, I'm going to switch gears a little bit and I'd love you to talk a little about bit about grief. I remember hearing you on an On Being podcast with Krista Tippett, I think it was, and you described grief in one of the most beautiful ways. And maybe it hit me because it was something that was very real to me at the moment. But um, you described it as a falling into. A falling into grief is like falling into love. Yes. Falling towards something. Can you can you describe your thoughts around grief? Um, yes. And perhaps via some beautiful questions along the way. Yeah, I think um, a bit like love, uh, the only cure for grief is grief itself, and uh, the only cure for the pangs of love is to carry on loving, and uh, till it transforms into something else. So it's a doorway of physical experience. When you lose someone in your life who you love very deeply, a family member or a spouse or, God forbid, a child, you know, um, it's like losing one of your own limbs, actually. It's like part of your body has been taken away. And, um, and so you're brought into direct contact with with this powerful sense of absence at the center of the world. And it's interesting that Meister Eckhart, the great Dominican mystic of the 13th century, uh, when he was asked, where is God? He said, nowhere. And he wasn't being facetious. He was really, he was really saying that the true experience of God is always through absence. What you feel is missing in your life you should trust and you should follow that sense of absence, which of course is what we translate as the word longing. You should follow that longing and it's a very physical journey and it's a, it's a journey of grief of admitting what you do not have, what you've always wanted 
and quite often how you have sabotaged yourself in obtaining the very thing that you want because you're afraid of it. Yeah. So we have so many defensive walls around the sense of absence inside ourselves, the sense of lack. Yeah. So there's nothing wrong with lack in a human being so long as you embody it fully, so, so long as you are following as a sincere pilgrim what you uh, feel is physically missing in your life. Yeah. And you ask the beautiful questions about it. What would I need to do in order to bring that quality or that person or that life or that home into my life? How do I make the invitation? Mm. I think you've also described this idea like falling in love. You're falling towards something and with falling into grief, you're yes. falling <clears throat> and you fall through one floor, you th- fall through another and you're not arriving at that thing because that thing is now gone. And when you finally do crash, because you do, you land at that part of yourself that will now need to take the place of the thing that is missing. And I found that the comforting part of, of this idea of grief is, as getting comfortable with the thing that's missing. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's, uh, I'm not sure you could word, use that word comfort, um, getting comfortable with in the same breath. Yeah. It's, uh, it's an experience of kind of atomization and undoing just as falling in love is. Yeah. And so it's, it's the ability to arrange for your own disappearance in a way. <laughs> Which is not so comfortable. <laughs> you always it? know when you're getting, you always know when you're getting close to the truth because you start speaking absolute nonsense, but <laughs> you do have to arrange for your own disappearance. You know, and you're going to be kidnapped by reality, abducted by what calls you on. That's how I felt with, I remember the first, I mean, I love poetry from when I was little because my mother fed me a lot of it and recited it in Irish and English late at night at my bedside. But when I reached up at tiptoe in the local library when I was 11 or 12 years old and pulled down uh, from the very top shelf this book of poetry by Tom Gunn and, uh, and, the, and the, uh, the Yorkshire poet whose name has just escaped me right now, um, I I read those lines and I literally felt as if I'd been as if I'd been abducted by a passing hawk. Like this claws had got into me, lifted me up, and were carrying me off with beating wings. That's how I felt when I read those those guys. Yeah, it was. Uh, it's, this is the real stuff. My God, you know. I also felt this is how. Uh, this is, these are adults who have kept the primary vision of childhood alive into adulthood. I don't even remember that feeling as a child, most children have it, of listening to the adult world around you and saying to yourself, these people are crazy. These people are insane. They've forgotten the priorities of existence, the things they're concerned with, the things they're worried about, the things they criticize other people for. These people are in a state of amnesia. You wouldn't 
say that as a child, but that's what you're thinking. Uh, you wouldn't use that word, but they, they've forgotten. Mm-hmm. And when I read poetry, uh, true, you know, fierce adult poetry for the first time when I was 12 or 13, I, I said, these are adults who have kept the, my primary vision that I have alive into maturity. And so it's possible actually to stay alive. Part of me was thinking there's this inevitable demise of the spirit into adulthood until that moment. So that was, you know, there was the grief, there was the abduction, and there was the transformation all in one movement. Isn't it interesting as a as an adult, I use the word comfort. And and you know, you took umbrage with that that description of getting comfortable with the unknown, getting comfortable with that disappearance or disintegration. And uh, as kids, we don't we didn't choose comfort. In fact, it was the discomfort that we would go towards. It was the cold water that we would insist on staying in. You know, when all the adults would say, "Come on, we've got to get out of here. It's freezing." Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Like our original, most innocent space is to be uncomfortable, yes. and yet we live in a culture that tries to cocoon children from any kind of discomfort. And so, yes. I don't know if you feel the same way, but I look around and I see a generation of children that aren't getting to be kids as a result of this cocooning. Yeah, it's a worldwide concern, you know, and the fact that they're they're kept away from um, from going out in, into uh, into the wild or even just into the local field or or woods, you know, or to not know things, to not know things like everything is micromanaged, and they can Google anything, they can now even Siri or, you know, Alexa, without actually having to lift a finger to find something, some piece of information. Hey, David, um, I'm aware of time, but I do want to talk about your latest book of poetry, which I think will probably be able to be purchased here in Australia in a couple of months, um, Still Possible, which I think is the perfect title for the times. Can you tell me what's still possible, or maybe I should say, what do we fear is not possible? What were you attending to when you wrote this book? Well, I think in the it was written, you know, in this very study that I'm speaking to you from now, and the, the the you know the best and quietest corner of of the pandemic that I could find. And you're on an uh, island, aren't you? Yes, that's right. And uh, I mean, all of us had very mixed experiences of the lockdown and the particular form of lockdown that we were in. You were in a very fierce lockdown in Australia and um, very hard on individuals and on society. I, you know, my circumstances were very good, but even so, there was a kind of claustrophobia. And uh, and I realized, you know, I was saying, I was realized I was asking the beautiful question, is it, will it be possible to go out in the world again in the way that we were involved with it before? And part of the understanding was actually, you know, the way we were involved before was actually quite manic. And we were all charging around the planet <laughs> at great speed, you know, and going hither and thither. And I, part of me was actually tremendously relieved not to have to cross time zones, the exhaustion of travel. The, You know, I love travel so much that, um, that uh, I was helpless to say no to it in a way. So I got this beautiful experience, but the the great question was, 
what is still possible? And I realized actually that's a question human beings ask of themselves at almost every epoch of their life. You know, when you cross from teenhood into your 20s, you have questions about, is it still possible to have the wildness I had as an adolescent in my young adulthood? When you go from young adulthood to responsibility in your 30s, is it still possible to carry that sense of adventure you had in your 20s? And through every epoch in your life, 40s, 50s, 60s, we are unconsciously asking ourselves, what's still possible? Now, I often think that there's there's a form of youthfulness that's possible to you in your 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s that was actually prohibited to you when you were in your 20s. And uh, uh, it comes through actually maturity. There's that old saying, which is so true, about youth being wasted on the young. (laughs) And and, uh, so... What is still possible? So this is a piece from from the title poem, which is many, many pages long, going through what is all. I think it's your longest poem, isn't it? Like it's it might be be up there. Yeah, it's competing. Yeah, with with. But this is one. This is one stanza from it, which is a fancy poetic way of saying one paragraph. Yeah. (laughs) It's not too late to imagine that the days to come are the lost children you are still to bring to birth. It's not too late to imagine that the days to come are the lost children you are still to bring to birth and bring to maturity. And that you are ready once more to be selfless on their behalf, setting them to rights when they fall, listening when they lose faith, being that mother or father who through all their difficulties gives the gift of constant witness Mm. so it's interesting the dogs are going crazy outside again the sense that you could be the ancestor of your future happiness that what you do today your future self could come back and thank you for just as when we reach our own maturity we go we go back in our minds and thank our own mother and father for things they did for us uh that that we were unappreciative of at the time and we took for granted yeah yeah and it's only when when we we reach maturity ourselves that you realize how much every individual has on their plate and not only did they have the whole of reality on their plate but they had us on their plate too at the same time and and they were very good in certain ways very much feeds into the climate Mm. situation as well of course because exactly. we are ancestors to the future yeah. life on this planet. Was that yes. something that plays into your thinking? Well, yeah. I mean, we've, it's very difficult for us, to, for us to face up to changing our behaviour around climate because it doesn't fit into any of our mythological stories where you always had to have a, you had to have a, a personification of evil against which you were fighting. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so human beings are not made to actually grapple with this kind of story, which is in just a slight abstract. It's very real, but from a mythological point of view, it's an abstract. So we actually have to change our, our imaginative identity. And of course, the personification of 
difficulty in this stage is ourselves, actually. Yeah. And just walking both- around the house, wasting all the things that we waste, you know, and throw in the bin. We're both the enemy um, and the yes. victim in this climate war, and that's a very unusual space to be in. Exactly, yeah. So we're looking at a an imaginative transformation, but we're also looking at the early stages of the 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 real disappearance of transnational borders because you can't have a selfish nationalism and deal with the dynamics of climate change at the same time. You can't be just Australian and say we're going to produce and burn coal as much as we want, you know. You can't, yeah, you can't be, um, you you can't be uh, um, from whatever inheritance you're from and have an excuse because that's part of your inheritance. I mean, I grew up with coal fires. I love coal fires. I, I, You're from I, Yorkshire. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. And uh, a coal fire, um, an open coal fire, is one of the most beautiful things in the world. And all the transformations it goes through and the late heat that it throws off, you know. Uh, I have to let go of that. You know? I grew up with Land Rovers. You know, I grew up tinkering with Land Rovers. I grew up fixing Land Rovers. I grew up driving across Europe to Turkey in Land Rovers. I was Land Rovers, Land Rovers, Land Rovers, you know. I have a Land Rover now. I will not buy another internal combustion engine Land Rover. It's a big part of my psyche. I have to let it go. When When they make an electric one, I'll get one. But until then, you know, all of us have these inherited precious parts of our existence that uh, that we suddenly go, oh, my God, you know, really, am I asked to stop doing this? Yeah. Uh, what's, the, what's the beautiful question then, David, that we can ask ourselves in this space <clears throat> where yeah. there, are, there is still so much that is still possible? What I is the beautiful question? I think it's a. I just did the write up for my three Sunday series in January, which is three Sunday more. It's a series, um, and uh, and the theme is around simplification. I think the only. I think the real invitation is to simplify your life, yeah. and that's not to create a kind of puritanism where you're not enjoying anything, and not going anywhere. But all of us have to go through some kind of radical simplification uh, where we we don't quite need as much. So, mm, so I guess and, the question, uh, the beautiful question yeah. is, how much do we need? What do we need? How much can we let go of? What can we let go of? Yes. And um, what, you know, what kind of happiness might await for me in not just the sense of doing without, but some other giftedness that all of our great monastic traditions have understood in every culture on earth, all of our great native traditions, you give everything up, you go out in the wilderness, you you pay, you, you reduce your life down to the, to the essentials and you pay attention from that place. And there's another kind of giftedness that is possible from that place. Yeah. 
That leads beautifully into my absolutely final question that I like to ask a select few guests on on Wild, and that is, if we lose it all, what is left? And I suppose it's a question that invites you to think or to tell us, share with us um, what essentially matters when all the guff, all the, the fuss, all the layers of complexity and, and commodification is gone and even when perhaps we lose, we lose the world that we, we love so much, what is at the essence of our human experience that is still possible? Yes, um, we're, you're really talking about a kind of, um, of death. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is a piece from, from the book, Still Possible, which works with that. What's on the other side of you having to give up? Yes. Um, and in this case, it's to give up your, your life, but also it's giving up, holding on to your life. I mean, it's a, it's a cliche. Um, that we have to die die in order to live, but it's a cliche because it's so stubbornly true. You you have to get over yourself, get beyond yourself. So this is called Beyond Santiago. I read a poem earlier, which was for the road to Santiago. Death is so simple. Death is so simple. One moment you are alive, and then you are not. One moment you're alive, and then you are not. And that fear you carry with you might be equally as simple too. That you'll never have the time to accomplish what you wish. But stop a moment now before the way beyond. And let me tell you this. Stop a moment now before the way beyond. And let me tell you this. You will go out of this life, however untimely, having completed every single thing you wished. You will arrive in that night like a newborn child welcomed by loving arms. You will find in that long anticipated enemy, the ultimate form of forgiveness and friendship. Every fearful goodbye suddenly become a gentle getting to know, a getting to know of a forgiveness that was strangely always anticipated. A getting to know of a forgiveness that was strangely always anticipated, a welcome, and a full understanding of all you ever did, everything you gave, and everything you were given, and then everything you could never give, and above all, above all, everything you could never bring yourself to receive. Those unattainable distances that always broke your heart, and the gifted understanding of why it was so hard for you to love, the gifted understanding of why it was so hard for you to love. And then, and most importantly, and right to the heart, everything you were and everything you gave that was never, ever on your list. Mm. And then, and most importantly, everything you were and everything you gave that was never, ever on your list. That's a wonderful, wonderful note to end on. And um, I have tears of recognition, as I often do when you recite your poetry, David. Lovely. Um, that's what poetry is. It's a mutual recognition, right? That exactly, we're in this together. Yeah, yeah. Mm. breaking down of the... Well, it's lovely to uh, chat with you across across the oceans. 
and mm. uh, I look forward to a world in which uh, we can walk the Lake District again, again together. So. Me too, and thank you for introducing me to such a wonderful community. That community, um, we've stayed in touch and there's some wonderful souls who are now very much part of my life through that um, shared experience that you create for us. Thank you once again, and um, we will be looking out for your poetry book when it arrives here in Australia. Very Thank good. You. Thank you, Sarah. All the best now. I don't think I'll go into a pithy overview of, you know, the episode, as I sometimes do on this podcast. I think David's words need to land exactly as they are because they're kind of perfect. Although... Let me just share two thoughts that really grabbed me in the discussion. The first is the notion of practising the making of a beautiful mind. I think that is a template for for living, really. The second, and I think I've got this quote right, Cassie, a real life is this idea of being questioned by heartbreak. And I think the invitation that David presents here is to get very accepting of the pain of life and to understand the worth of it and to enable the questions, the beautiful questions that come out of that pain. And of course, we ask so many deep questions when we are in pain. And it's just such a relief to know that they're important and so worthy. Cassie, um, I might actually get you to share what actually dropped for you um, in the chat because you listened through the whole lot, I know. I really loved the relationship with silence yeah, and then the need of the relationship with silence. Uh, it comes from, you know, a childhood of being constantly rewarded for having the easy answer, but not being rewarded for asking and saying, I have no idea what you're talking about, that we need to find a way to reward ourselves for not having the easy answer. That really resonated with me. Totally agree. Look, as a parting note, um, as we move into our future life, as David would put it, uh, I just want to flag that my Live Nation tour is back on in February, March, and I'll be asking a number of beautiful questions of ourselves, of our life, of our engagement in the climate crisis ahead of the next election here in Australia. Um, The tour is in February and into March, finishing off in Sydney. And uh, you can get all the details now at my website, sarahwilson.com, and I'd love to see you there. If you've already got tickets, those tickets will be passed on to these new dates. It's going to be a really important conversation, and I'm really excited about seeing you all in real life. Anyway, until then, as Albert Camus would say, live your life to the point of tears and stay wild. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.